Well, take out your swords. Genesis chapter 32. Genesis 32. And being persuaded to pray. How many of you, generally speaking, can identify so far with the life of Jacob? I can. I, you know, I, I, I would say in my lifetime, I've known what God wants me to do, and I haven't quite gone all the way to where he wants me to go. I've stopped short and find myself having to get back to Bethel. I have at times tried to help God out. Anybody else tried to help God out occasionally? You know, you, you think that God's, you know, maybe fallen asleep on the job a little bit and he needs a little of your assistance to make sure that the universe spins correctly. Now, that's, that's really the story of Jacob. If you want to look at his life in a nutshell, he's this incredible man who on one hand seems to have just amazing insights into God's character and his nature, um, what actually God wants from him, and he hears from the Lord accurately. Uh, he begins to, with fervor, do those things. But he seems to always stop just slightly short and remember, this is a man whose name is going to be changed to Israel, governed by God. Up to this point, you would say he has the right name, Jacob, amen? Uh, deceiver, heel catcher, one, one who has a little bit of a, a tough time, actually, at times with his own personal integrity and the way that he deals with the commands that the Lord gives him. And so tonight we find uh, Jacob in a place where he can either plan or he can panic, or he can pray. And I think that pretty well describes how we generally respond to the things that come into our lives. We either plan some type of way to deal with it, we panic because there appears to be no way to deal with it, or we do what we should do, which is we stop and seek the guidance of the Lord, we pray. And we're going to see Jacob kind of do a little bit of all these things. And so let's pray. We'll pick up the first 21 verses here in Genesis chapter 32 tonight. Father, uh, we can so identify, uh, if no one else in the room can identify with Jacob, I can identify with Jacob. Lord, how many times I've heard your voice and with zeal embarked on some journey on your behalf, but partway there recognized some danger and resorted to my own abilities or maybe my own skills or talents or gifts and tonight uh, we want to travel all the way to Bethel with you and Lord we would pray that as we hear the story of this man uh, who obviously loves you that you'd help us to grow from his experience that you'd speak to us through the Holy Spirit's work in our lives as we study your word in Jesus name amen verse 1 Genesis 32 and so Jacob went on his way And the angels of God met him. And so Jacob kind of is realizing that he hasn't gone the full distance. He he has not gone where God's asked him to go. And so the angels of God kind of meet him when he's on his way. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. In other words, he's recognizing there's something special about what, what is about to happen. And he called the name of that place Manahem. And then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, in the country of Edom. So modern-day Jordan. 
the opposite, the eastern side of the Jordan River. And thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now, and I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I've sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. And so you can kind of see the beginning of what will be the main problem in these verses, and that's the area of compromise. When God has spoken into your life that he has a plan and he's going to deliver you and he wants you to do something, the worst decision that you can make, generally speaking, is to compromise. To in some way, shape, or form say, well, I heard what God said, but I'm a little worried about the outcome, so I'm going to interject just a little bit of my flesh into the situation. And so you can see Jacob going backwards to the way he has traditionally handled most things as we have seen his life exposed to us here in the book of Genesis. He says, I, I want to find favor in your sight, Esau. He's got, a, he's got an enemy, a legitimate enemy in Esau. And he's trying to win Esau's favor. And while he's his brother, it's so very clear that Jacob is supposed to be living for the Lord. And Esau was not really living for the Lord. And then the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We come to your, come to your brother Esau and he also is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. And so Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies and said, if Esau comes to one company and attacks it, then let the other company which is left, they will escape. And so you can see where Jacob's going with this. He's actually making a compromise that is going to stop the whole show very short of where he needs to go. Interesting, probably many of you, if you didn't read it when you were in uh, high school or junior high, maybe you read it it after, but George Orwell's 1984, this dystopian novel uh, where where he's got this party that kind of governs the things, the INSOC party, which was the English Socialist Party. Uh, And their motto was, who controls the past controls the future and who controls the present controls the past. In other words, basically... You just change for whatever reason and whatever convenience there is. Just go with the flow. Don't cause any waves. Compromise everywhere. If you need to change the past, change the past. If you need to make up a revisionist history of the events, do that. And if you can control that, you can control the future. And if you can control the present you can control the past because basically the people who are in the present can make up whatever they want about the past i think a lot of christians live their lives that way they kind of make up their own reality and they forget the lessons that god has already taught them we forget the lessons that god has already taught us and we kind of make up our own present hoping that we can change the past or that maybe the past is not going to repeat itself if we just simply do it maybe a little more deceptively. It doesn't work because ultimately you can't change the nature of God. You can't change history itself. You're not actually making any effect. You're just simply learning to live with the enemy. And that is a dangerous place for us as the body of Christ. Because here's the truth of it. You can't make peace with the enemy. It's not possible. 
It's not possible. He is always going to hate you. He is always going to try and destroy you. And when you try and make nice with the enemy, you're basically inviting him into your camp. You're saying, look, well, well, it won't be that bad. When in fact, it will be that bad. And it never works. Two decades before this, Jacob had fled from Esau to Laban. And now he's fleeing from Laban back to Esau. You get the, you get the picture? It's like he never stays and deals with things. He doesn't deal with the issue. He always runs away before that problem is dealt with in his life. And every time he runs away, the person that goes before him and goes with him is him. Because his heart's not changed. His motivations aren't changed. He hasn't learned anything. That's so dangerous for us. Because here's the deal. Every time you've got to relive something like this in your own life, God ratchets up the consequences a little bit because he wants us to get it. He does not want us to repeat those mistakes. And so very often you find that the first time you make a mistake, God's generally quite lenient with us, amen? And praise the Lord for that. His grace is just wonderful and sufficient for all things, but he recognizes there's a problem. And so the next time it's a little more costly and the next time it's even a little more costly and finally, you get to that place to where you're finding yourself underneath the chastening hand of the Lord. And it's not good. Jacob hasn't quite gotten that. And it's been 20 years of making these kinds of mistakes. It's true that our, we try and forget our sins. But our sins don't forget us. And if we don't deal with sin in our lives, then it will come back to haunt us. It will reappear. There's a reason that Jesus, when talking about sin itself, if your hand offends you, cut it off. If you've got an issue with your eye, pluck it out. Now, I'm not suggesting that anyone in here cut off your hand. Amen? Hallelujah, praise the Lord. That's not what he was getting at. But what Jesus was saying was deal decisively with these things, but because if you don't, it will probably be worse for you at some point in time. So those things which are a stumbling block in our lives, those areas where we have problems, God's word is speaking to us tonight that we have to take decisive action in those areas of failure that we all have from time to time. You cannot put it away to be dealt with at a later date. What will happen is that follows you and the consequences of whatever it is also follows you. And all along the way, the accumulation of the consequences are getting greater and greater and greater and greater and greater. And while it's true that Jacob, um, what he did to his father and his brother, forgiven by God. But time and geography were not going to settle that issue. He didn't stay and make it right. He ran away. He didn't rebuild the relationship. He didn't do what was necessary to restore that relationship. So as you study these actions, you're going to see quite a few things here. You're going to see this tension between fear and faith. They do not peacefully coexist, by the way. Very generally speaking, if you have fear, you have at least less faith than you should have. And if you have massive faith, it will drive out the fear. But fear and faith do not coexist well. You're going to also see that 
you, you can go back and forth between actually trusting God and scheming, trying to figure out your own way around things. And this is an area that I think a lot of, a lot of us in America struggle with because we know what God says and we know that if he says it, that he's also going to give us the strength to actually do it. But when we look at the consequences that might come from actually doing the will of the Lord, we say, well, we'll just kind of alter that just slightly. I, I know his word says I ought to live my life this way, but couldn't I just kind of almost sort of live like that, but not really? Trusting God is trusting God, and trusting God is trusting God without scheming, without plotting, without trying to help God out. If he says it, he means it. We're to obey it and do it. We're to be doers of the word, not hearers only. And sometimes, sometimes we're guilty of asking God for help while all the while almost acting as though we don't know God. We want him to take care of things, but we think that we don't need to do our part. We so heavily lean on the grace of God. And again, make no mistake, God's grace is amazing. But God's grace put Jesus on the cross. Christ died for our sins. So that grace is neither cheap, nor was it free. It's free to us, but it cost Jesus his life. So when we try and pray and say, God, we we want you to do these things, we have to always remember that it's God's will that we want to accomplish, not ours. Unfortunately, a lot of times we pray like, well, I'm going to ask God for help, but I'm actually going to ask God to help me get my will be done, not his. We are to pray, thy will be done, Lord. Jacob struggles with that. And so we see him in that sense, reaping what he'd sown. That principle, none of us will escape None of us get away from it. Laban had finally left him at at the monument at Mitzpah, and Jacob is now headed towards Bethel, the destination that God appointed for him. But Jacob knew on the other end there was a problem. And now he's trying to scheme his way out of that problem, the consequences. Instead of facing the problem head on, he, well, I'll just divide my flocks up. You know, if I lose half of my stuff, oh well, as long as I don't have to deal with my past. Brothers and sisters, deal with your past. Let it be the past, deal with it, and let God use it in your life. But if you simply try and avoid it, it's going to come back to haunt you. You have to deal with it. There's several things here that we can see first. You can kind of see Jacob previewing this whole thing and his preparations. And those preparations aren't exactly what he ought to be doing. You can kind of tell. Any of you ever had the experience of talking to someone who professes to be a Christian, but everything they say has nothing to do with a Christian worldview? You ever talk to people like that? Oh yeah, I'm a believer. Then you ask them how, you know, what, what, what's going on in their life. Well, you know, I'm, I'm living with my boyfriend and my girlfriend. And now ah, we party all the time. And 
you know, I kind of like to talk a little bit and I don't actually work. I'm, you know, living off a slip and fall lawsuit from Walmart. You know what I'm saying? You sit there and talk to him. It's like, where is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? Where's the evidence that you're actually a redeemed soul? And you can't see it because everything they say, all the preparations of their life would say that they're not a believer. We're supposed to be so different from the world that the world looks at us and says, you're one of God's followers, aren't you? Not when the world looks at us and says, hey, you're one of ours. And you also know Jesus? Jesus is not an add-on module to your life. He is your life. For Jacob, he kind of worshiped God conveniently. It's like when he was around Christians, he talked Christianese. But when he's with people of the world, he schemed and plotted. There shouldn't be a difference between how you deal with people in the world and how you deal with people in the church. You should have the same character and exactly the same principles in both places. But Jacob's preparation, anticipating he's going to be reunited with Esau, which, by the way, that was wisdom on his part, sends messengers ahead. But instead of committing the whole matter to the Lord, he makes a plan just in case he actually meets up with them to lose half his stuff. That's called compromise. It's like I'll give away this stuff as long as I don't have to deal with this issue in my life. God will never ask you to give up something that you shouldn't give up and he will never take from you what he wants you to have. But God will allow you to make mistakes to where you can do those things to yourself. Jacob's going to send some messengers. Also a good idea. But calling Esau his Lord? Not a good idea. Esau was not his Lord. He was doing that as a platitude to Esau to try and gain favor so Esau would be nice to him. When Esau was a carnal guy. He's trying to make nice in essence with Esau and impress him with his wealth. Basically Jacob's saying, look God, I don't actually trust you. And I so don't trust you that I'm going to try and make peace with the world. Brothers and sisters, you cannot make peace with the world. You can't. You may think you can, but you can't. And if you try, God's going to show you the futility of it. I don't even know how many people I've talked to in my lifetime where where they've tried to do this very thing. They've tried to make peace with the world. And they make plans with the world. They make nice with the world. They make friends with the world. They even try and marry the world for all intents and purposes. And time goes by and they all of a sudden realize that the world has always been what the world is. And they're sitting holding that empty bag of promises that the world made. Realizing that they've been taken advantage of by the world. The world does not have your best interest in mind. But Satan wants wants you to think that it does. You've got to be very, very, very wise 
Proverbs chapter 18, verse 19 says, A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city. This was going to be a strong, hard battle, and there was no way to avoid it. And the best thing that Jacob could have done is said, You know what? I'm going to go back and face Esau. And whatever price I need to pay, whatever I need to learn, that's what I'm going to do. I see this so often in marriage. Sometimes Pat and Rob and I will just talk. You know, we go through things that we've, you know, been in counseling with people on. And, and I cannot even tell you how, how often compromise is brought into a marriage. And trying, trying to avoid the, the problem or avoid addressing the problem, they just put it on a shelf for another day. And guess what? That problem doesn't go away. But it does get old and moldy and crusty and smelly. And it's worse the next time they take it off the shelf. You have to deal with these things in your life. If you don't deal with them, they will come back and haunt you. Whether it's in your marriage or in some other relationship. If you don't deal with the stuff that comes your way. God will deal with it for you. Because he loves you too much to leave you in the midst of that. A second thing that we can see here is Jacob actually receives divine protection. Jacob recognizes, he sees the army of angels, he says, this is God's host. Now Jacob basically thinks it's a sign almost that he needs to split up his herds and his flocks and his people. There was no reason for him to be afraid. We know what Romans 8 says to us today. If God be for us, who can be against us? Amen? But just because we now know that doesn't mean it wasn't true then because God's character changes not. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has always been trustworthy. And if God told Jacob to go, I want you to go back to Bethel, was God not able to protect Jacob to get him there? He sent him there. Was God not going to be able to do all that needs to be done? Because it is he that works to will and to do as his good pleasure, amen? He's the one that's faithful to complete it unto the final day of Christ Jesus, amen? You can attend seminars, you can do all kinds of things. You could have been looking at these angels and all those kind of things. But at the end of the day... We trust in the true and the living God, don't we? That's just where you got to hang your hat. You got to take it off and say, you know what? I'm trusting God on this. Even though he got divine protection, he could trust God in the little things. A third thing, and this is the part that I think we fall into from time to time. As Jacob, as his family, as his servants, his flocks, his herds were traveling slowly Jacob is going to get to the Jabbok River, which is a tributary of the Jordan. It's in modern-day Jordan. Uh, he, he's got you know, this, this army advancing towards him of 400 men that are from Esau. And, and his guilty conscience, he's still thinking about what happened 20 years earlier. He begins to make bad decisions. Because he did not deal with it 20 years earlier, he's still making bad decisions. And one bad decision leads to another bad decision. He didn't trust God 20 years previous and he's still not trusting God now. Even though he's acting in obedience, it's only partial obedience. 
When you have a guilty conscience, sometimes all we see is the, is the most awful outcome. And so you begin to act that way. Faith gets crowded out by that fear. You, you know what happened and it wasn't dealt with. So that fear comes in and it crowds your faith out of your life. You sit there and go, oh, I, I, just, I, don't, I just don't know. The reason you don't know is you didn't let God work the first time. You didn't allow God to be faithful in your life the first time. Nor the second time, nor the third time, or the tenth time. And by the time you live out 20 years, when you live out a life of not trusting God, it becomes very hard because you have added all of this history of lack of faith and you get to this difficult place in your life and all of a sudden you can't trust God because you've never actually trusted him. Sometimes you just got to say, God, this is too big for me. You got to take care of it. And we all have those things from time to time. If you're walking by faith, exactly as Psalm 112 says, you don't need to fear what the enemy can do. I mean, seriously, what's the worst thing that the enemy could potentially do to any person on this planet who's a believer? He can kill you if God allows it. So if God allows it, the enemy could potentially bring something in your life that might kill you. But God simply allowed it because he's the one that controls those things. What happens to a believer when he dies? Go straight in the presence of the Lord, amen? So the very worst thing that this world can do to you is take your life, which is actually the best thing that could happen to you ever in eternity. You, You understand? And when you look at it from that perspective, The very worst thing the world can do for you is this incredible end that puts you in the presence of the Lord. And everything in between is less than that. So even in a life or death situation, you say, God, I'm not going to be afraid of evil tidings. My heart is fixed. I'm trusting the Lord. I'm just going to rest in this. And don't get me wrong, this is no easy task. Amen? Anybody that's had a rough go of it lately, say amen. 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 It is. It's hard. It's not easy to just say, Lord, I'm casting my cares upon you because you care for me. But that is what he wants us to do. It's what he wanted Jacob to do. Throw himself on the mercy of the Lord. But instead of remembering the encouraging vision... God's angelic army, instead of thinking on those things, what does Jacob do? Well, I'll divide up the people, and if they all get killed, we can escape. If I lose half my fortune, I still have half my fortune. Instead of trusting God to see the whole thing through, instead of saying, God, you put me on this journey, I'm trusting you to get me home. And I can tell you this. And again, this is, this is more an admission than anything else. Human wisdom is always a poor substitute for God's wisdom. Human wisdom is always a poor substitute for God's wisdom. Now notice what I did not say. Human wisdom has no value. I didn't say that, nor did I mean it. 
Your human wisdom, God gave you that human wisdom. But when it becomes a substitute for God's wisdom, just exactly as James chapter 1 says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God who gives to all liberally without reproach. God's not going to go, I can't believe you're asking me for wisdom. I mean, what's wrong with you? Grow up. God's not going to do that to you. If you ask of God, he gives it to you. It will be, James said, given to you. But let him ask in faith. Don't ask without faith. Don't doubt. Because the person that's doubting is actually not trusting. And this is an area of struggle, I think, for most Christians. It's like we ask and then we go about our plotting, just like Jacob does. We say, God, well, I'd really like for you to do this, and then you go do your own thing. James said it this way. For he who doubts is like a wave of the wind of the sea driven and tossed. Don't let that man suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. Because he's double-minded and he's unstable in all of his ways. You can't have fear and faith at the same time. If you're leaning on your own human wisdom, you don't have all of God's wisdom that you need. In other words, trusting the Lord shouldn't be the last thing that we think of. Amen? Isn't it weird how that happens to us? I'm sure nobody here tonight does this. Where you run down a specific road, you go a direction, and you get almost all the way to your intended end, only to find out you actually never asked God if this is where you're supposed to be. And then you start asking God to clean up your mess. Amen? Am I right? Don't we do that? I do. There are times when I'll I'll be thinking about something and God will give me a little piece of information and I'll be praying and all of a sudden it's just like I'll just get an idea. Because I'm a doer. And probably some of you are as well. And so us doers, what we do is we do. Amen? That's what we do. We do. So God gives you the idea and you go, well, Lord, that's, that's really cool. And I'll run with it. Thanks. And you start going that direction. You know, you're doing your best. And it's not like you're ignoring God totally. But you get all the way to some end. And you go, you know, I never actually asked God to ordain any of these steps. I just did my best. You see, sometimes we buy into the world's philosophy that way. God does not help those who help themselves. Can I just tell you that's not true? God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who lean on him. God helps those who cry out to God. God helps those who are bankrupt in and of themselves because they're leaning on the everlasting arms of Jesus. God doesn't just help you because you put a lot of effort into something. Matter of fact, sometimes that effort is actually an offense to God because you're basically saying you don't need him. So you know what he does? He kind of metaphorically just stands there and goes, so Jeff, how's that working out for you? Doing pretty good with that, are you? I just noticed that's kind of a failure. Don't you think that would have gone better if you'd actually asked me about that before you started doing it? I know you got a couple of, you know, a couple of brain cells working and all, but I did create the universe. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? 
And we kind of talk to God like he's an inferior. It's like, oh, okay, Lord, you know, all right, just do something, would you? Almost like he's a, a child. No, we're the children and he's the master. We need to check in with him. Proverbs 3. We all know verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will guide and direct your paths. Most of you in this room know that one. But it goes on, verses 7 and 8. Another set of, there's four sets of couplets here. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. He's you. Ooh, that's a little different, isn't it? For it will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Then it goes on in verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with all your possessions, with the first fruits of your increase, so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. You get it? It's not just asking God to do it for you. It's submitting everything you already have into his care and saying, Lord, everything is yours. These sheep and these goats that Jacob's dragging around out in the wilderness of Seir, they're not actually his. They belong to God. And he's acting like they're his. It's like, well, I'll just divide them up and you guys can go over there. And if you get killed by Esau's troops, that's cool because we're going to get away. Those are God's goats. Those are God's sheep. Those are God's camels. And Jacob's going, well, you know, if I lose a few things, you know, so what? Verse 11 of Proverbs 3, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as the father, the son, in whom he delights. Those things all go together. That's an action plan. Probably some of you work for a company that has a very specific mission statement, a very specific action plan. Maybe you have your core values listed someplace. You talk about a nice set of core values. There it is. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Honor the Lord with all your possessions and do not despise the chastening of the Lord. There's an incredible set of core values for us who love the Lord to say, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you practically. I'm going to trust you emotionally. I'm going to trust you physically. I'm going to trust you spiritually. I'm going to trust you provisionally. Lord, I'm going to trust you in everything. You know, sometimes we we trust the Lord in, in things that it's easy to trust God in. Whether you realize it or not, most of you trust God to get you up in the morning. Amen? You know how I know that? You don't have somebody come and shake you every morning to see if you're still alive. You just believe that God's going to give you breath. You know he doesn't have to give you breath every night? So you actually do trust God. But how about trusting him in the things that are a little tougher? For us who are parents, our kids. Oh my. Wow, that's tough, isn't it? Trusting him with our finances, also difficult. It's like, Lord, you know, I'm trusting you with this. We need to trust the Lord. Finally, we see Jacob praying with power and with purpose. And 
Uh, I'm going to look at the content of this prayer as we break it down a little, little bit. We'll pick up here in verse 9. And so this is the prayer of Jacob. It's one of the more beautiful prayers in all of Scripture. And yet it's prayed by a man whose faith is very weak. A man who actually doesn't trust God, so he knows what God wants from him. It's the implementation part that he's struggling with. Verse 9, and Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham. So he knows who God is, amen? He knows the promises of God, amen? O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you. I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown to your servant. For I've crossed over this Jordan with my staff and now I have two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with children. For you said, surely I will treat you well. And make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. It's almost like that that demonized child whose father cried out, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. It's like he's, he's praying, but he's not quite sure whether he actually believes what he's praying or not. We gotta, we gotta learn how to pray and believe. Rest and trust in our belief. Jesus, when he taught us how to pray in Matthew 6, begins what we call the Lord's Prayer, though I think really the Lord's Prayer is actually in John 17. But in Matthew 6, this prayer that begins, our Father who is in heaven, in verse 5, ahead of that prayer, he says, and when you pray... You shall not be as the hypocrites. For they love to pray in the standing in the synagogues, the corner of the streets, that it might be seen by men. For assuredly, I say to you, they have the reward. But when you pray, go into your room. And when you shut the door, pray to your father who's in the secret place. For your father sees in secret and will reward you openly. And when you pray, Don't use vain repetitions like the heathen do, for they think they've been heard for their many words, and therefore do not be like them. He basically says, don't pray like them. Don't live your prayer life the way the hypocrites do. The hypocrites are like, but they don't believe a word of it. They're doing it to be seen. They think that they've been heard. For the Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask him. And so in this manner, therefore, pray our Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done. Amen? Do you you see why that's important? Because look at these things that Jacob is doing. They're the right things. They're the right words. They're actually truth. Jacob remembered the word of the Lord, amen? He remembers God's word. He says, I remember the promise you made to my father Abraham and to my grandfather Isaac. Or to my father Isaac. He says, I remember what you said to them 
I know your word, Lord. You promised to make the descendants of Abraham greater than the sands of the sea. Can I tell you it's one thing to know the word of the Lord? It's another thing to do the word of the Lord? Jacob was having a tough time doing it. He knew what it said, but he wasn't living it. A second thing. Jacob was actually obeying the command of the Lord. He's on his way to Bethel. Amen? He's happy to get out from underneath Laban. He's leaving Padam Aram. He's going where he's supposed to go. But Jacob's imagination is actually a little bit ahead of his theology. He's trying to skip some of the necessary steps. Anybody, don't raise your hand. Any of you guilty? And again, just think in your own life. And if it's something you should deal with, please do. You ever guilty of seeing where you are and seeing where you need to go and trying to skip most of the steps in between those two places? Because God's actually trying to deal with something in your life. Maybe it's a character issue. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's something that that you have just been struggling with for a very long time, like Jacob is struggling with plotting and scheming. That's been his whole life. And so what he tries to do is he goes, okay, God spoke to me, here's the truth, and here's where I need to go, and and I'm going to tell everybody, yeah, I'm going to Bethel. But I'm going to stop at the bar. (laughs) You understand what I'm saying? You know, I'm a, well, you know, I mean, the journey's a long one. It's kind of boring. It's hot. I'll just kind of pull my camel right there into, and what God's saying is, no, I I want you to do all the work that I'm asking you to do. I want you to let me do the little things. All along life's journey, obeying those commands. We see Jacob was resting really in God's care. He kind of reviewed the last 20 years of his life. He looks at it and he says, look, every trial, every burden, everything that came to Jacob, God had been faithful. But he wasn't acting like it. He knew it, but he wasn't living as if God was faithful. He was actually living as if God was not trustworthy. That's why he's trying to help God out. A fourth thing. Jacob was actually believing God's purposes for his life. There in verse 11. He wasn't just thinking of himself. He had family and all those things. But this eternal purpose was being thwarted because he still had earthly anger for a single guy. There was a carnal part of Jacob that was undealt with. And so here's this beautiful promise that's been made. He believes that God's going to actually do some work in his life. But he's trying to go about it and leave that problem intact. He's trying to camp with the enemy. He said, I want to keep my bitterness. I want to keep my anger. I want to keep my hatred. I want to hang on to those things which have been destroying my life all the way along because ultimately I might need them. You know, if I let go of this bitterness, I mean, what am I going to do when Esau shows up? I mean, I actually might have to ask for his forgiveness. Heaven forbid I have to do that. I might have to admit my faults. Oh, I can't do that. I might actually have to tell somebody, you know what? I was W-R-O-N-G wrong. 
can't do that. I might actually have to do a 180. I may need to turn around and repent of a few things. I don't want to do that. You see, he knew and believed that God's purposes were thus and so, but he was unwilling to do what was necessary. Don't let that be you. We can see that Jacob ultimately was trusting God's promises. He was was looking far enough down the road, but he was still stuck in his fear. Exactly as Isaiah 2 says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for Yah, the Lord, my strength and my song, has also become my salvation. He's saying, look, I, I know you're God, but I think you're God for most other people. You're not actually God for me. I believe you can do that in that person's life. I've seen you do it, so I actually believe you can but I don't think you will for me. I've watched people over and over and over struggle with the exact same area of their life and they will tell you that they believe in the promises of God. They'll even point to people whom they have seen do it, but they will not believe it for themselves. You gotta believe it for you. That powerful praying that we should have with belief, with faith, that the missing ingredient in all five of these things was Jacob knew these things intellectually, but he would not trust the Lord himself for them. He would remember God's word. He had an intellectual understanding. He was obeying God's commands, but he was obeying them partially. He was resting in God's care in that he was moving the right direction, but at the same time he was plotting just in case God didn't come forward and do what he thought he should do. He even believed God's purposes, but he had a plan to back up just in case. And then finally, that trust that he had was not only incomplete trust, it was actually more trust in his own plot and his own scheme than it was in God's provision and providence. And finally, we see Jacob's compromise in all of this. Can I tell you, there is a massive danger for every last person in this room when you try and compromise with the world. Because the world does not tell you the price that it's going to exact from you. It just makes hollow promises. Verse 13, and so he lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand as a present from Esau, his brother. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milk camels and their colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 foals. And then he delivered them to the hand of his servants. Every drove by itself, and he said to his servants, Pass over before me, and put some distance between successive droves. And he commanded the first one, saying, When Esau, my brother, meets you, and asked ask you, saying, To whom do you belong, and where are you going? And those who are in front of who are those in front of you, then you shall say, They are your servant Jacob's. Do you see the compromise? He's saying, not, not do I, I serve God. I serve Jacob. It is a present sent to my Lord Esau. He calls Esau Lord. His Lord is Yahweh. The Lord of hosts. 
And behold, he is also behind us. And so he commanded the second, the third, and all the following droves, saying, In this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And also say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me, and afterwards I will see his face, and perhaps he will accept me. You see how he's trying to, to win Esau's favor? By calling him Lord. By giving in to him. And so the present went over before him and he himself lodged that night in the camp. Now you would think that a prayer with the kind of solid theological content that he had just prayed would have brought peace to Jacob's heart, don't you? If he was actually trusting God. And so you can kind of see from these actions that the prayer that he just prayed was prayed without a whole lot of faith in it. It was theologically accurate, but it was without faith. And the reason we know it was without faith is because he, what, what he does after the prayer. He says, I remember your word. I want to obey your commands. I'm resting in your care. I'm believing your promises. I'm trusting you, God. And then the first thing he does is return right to the arm of flesh. My Lord Esau, I'm bringing you gifts. I, I want to make nice. I, I, I don't want to have something between you, so I'll buy my way out of this problem. We never get very far by trying to do that with God. He doesn't need our help. He needs us to leave him in charge of the equation. He needs to be the beginning of it, the end of it. Needs to be the equation itself in that sense. Basically, if you look at what Jacob does, he now leaves God completely out of his plans. He says, Well, I'll just handle it myself. So you guys split up and you go over there and you go over there and you go over there. And if anybody talks to you, you just tell them that I am the servant of Esau. Not I am Jacob, son of the living God, son of Isaac, grandson of Abraham, to whom was made the promise, and I'm coming back to make this right. I'm coming back to take my licks. If I need to be chastised, then because I trust God, I'm coming back to you and I'm going to be on my knees and I'm going to repent for what I did. Now he's saying, look, I'll do it my way. There's a couple of passages I want to conclude with tonight. I'm actually going to have you turn there if you would. You can put your finger in Isaiah 40. But we're going to flip in a moment to Isaiah chapter 37. Isaiah 40. Now set this so that you can get the right context the prophet Isaiah is in Jerusalem. He's speaking to the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is simply Judah and the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. That's all that's left. The Assyrians have come and wiped out the ten northern tribes. So in that sense, all that is left is the southern tribe. 
Levi had no possession in the land because their possession was supposed to be God. So it is just Judah and Jerusalem. That's it. Verse 27, Isaiah 40. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over before my God? Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary, his understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases the strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up like wings of eagles. They shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not faint. Now I want you to turn over to chapter 37. Why would they pray a prayer like that in light of what God had already done in their life? This is the picture before. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into the city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with a shield. This is the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrians. Nor come before it with the shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return. He shall not come into the city, says the Lord, for I will defend this city and save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And then... The angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000 of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, there were corpses all dead. And so Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and went away and returned home and remained at Nineveh. And now it came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrash, his God, that his son, Adramelech and Cherazer struck him down with the sword and they escaped to the land of Arafat and then Eshahadron, his son, reigned in his place. The just claim, this prayer that's in chapter 40, how could it be that you watch the Lord, a surrounded nation who's basically been incarcerated in the city of Jerusalem, which at the time was way smaller than the city of Gardena. It's this little tiny place. Here's all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They cry out to God and God sends one angel of the Lord, whom I personally believe was the Lord Jesus himself, that was a Christophany. The Lord on their behalf goes out and wipes out the Assyrian army and the king of Assyria flees and they're going, well, we just don't know what the Lord's going to do. We're not sure. Have you not known? Have you not heard? You you see, the youths will faint, they'll be weary, the young men shall utterly fall. They'd stop trusting in God. 
have been a very short period of time and they're like, well, Lord, we don't know if you got this. We have to trust that the same God that delivered us on day one is going to deliver us on the last day. Amen? You can't pacify him, as verse 20 says. You can't put together an expensive gift for the world. You you can't be tossed to and fro. Many people follow this basic philosophy that Jacob has. And you put together a gift of your precious possessions and you offer it to the world and you think it's going to make peace with the world. And guess what? It doesn't. Because the ruler of this age is not satisfied with just part. The ruler of this age wants all of you. He'll accept the part, deplete your resources, and then he's going to come after the rest. He's going to try and kill you. Jacob had planned to follow behind that last drove, hoping that the combined impact of that gift would prepare Esau and Esau would forgive him and they just kind of forget about it. It wasn't going to work. We have to have the type of faith that is born out in works. That's why James said what he said, faith without works is dead. Amen? We have to live without scheming. We've got to say, look, Lord, I want to live my life in a way that honors you. I want to live out that Romans ten seventeen promise that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And if we hear the word of God and we're a doer of the word of God, it's going to produce fruits of righteousness in our lives. If it's not motivated, as Paul would write to the church at Rome, if it's not motivated by faith, then really to us who believe, it's actually sin. For whatever is not of faith is of sin. If I can't say, Lord, in faith, I believe this is what you want me to do and act on it according to faith, then I have to question even my own motivation. So when you look at God's word, the secret in all of this is if you look at what God's word had been, how it had been spoken to Jacob, he had a very clear path about what he needed to do. And he needed to do it. He was persuaded to pray. He prayed that prayer, but he prayed that prayer without faith. He kind of prayed that prayer knowing that these are the things about God, so I'll just say them. I, I've listened to people pray, and they, they pray the right words. But they go on living their life as if they didn't actually believe what they prayed. And no intention of changing the things that needed to be changed. They were actually looking for God's approval. So I'm going to pray these things. But I don't really believe them. Brothers and sisters, the real problem here was not Esau. The real problem was Jacob. The, the problem wasn't Esau's carnality, it was Jacob's carnality. Esau was doing what Esau does. Esau was an unbeliever in that sense. He clearly had not trusted God for most of his life. Came from the same family. So everybody knew where Esau stood. 
But Jacob, on the converse side of that, was pretending as if he was walking with God while doing the very same things that Esau was doing. That is a recipe for disaster in every believer's life. So when we see things that God's asking us to change, we need to say, Lord, even if it's painful, I'm going to let you change it. Even if it takes a long time, I'm going to take as long as it takes to do what you want me to do. Therefore, submitting yourself to God. Resting and trusting in who he is. Letting God know those prayer needs. And then trusting him to slay the Assyrians himself. Amen? That's a way for victory. Any other way? Try and take it into your own hands. You're probably not going to get a result you're going to like. So when you pray, pray with faith, believing, and then trust God that he's going to do it. Amen? Just stand. We'll close in prayer. Some of the pastors are going to come up, be available. Maybe you got something that you just want to start over on. Isn't it cool that God allows us to do do-overs all the time? And you can hit that button, go, you know what, God, I messed up. I'd like to do this over. You tell me what I need to do, and I'll do it. And he'll let you do that so you can get it right. He's not mad at you. He wants you to have success. And so rest and trust and do. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that we can live lives of faith. Pray that you'd help us to do that. Lord, there's so many areas in our lives where we're tempted to fall back to the world, Lord, to do things the world's way, and it just doesn't work. We love you, and it needs to show in every area of our life. And so, God, we surrender those things where we've been plotting and scheming, those things where we've turned to the flesh and tried to do it ourselves when you clearly said that you have a plan for it, but we don't want to wait. We don't want to rest. We don't want to trust. And so, Lord, when you called us to move, would we move completely? Get ourselves back to Bethel, your house. And Lord, along the journey, let there not be any compromise in our lives. Help us to walk in that complete trust, allowing you to accomplish what you desire. In Jesus' name, amen.